0: I'm Alistair Stevens.
1: I'm Elizabeth Ray.
0: And Tom Cruise is Ethan Hunt in Mission Impossible. So according to the always reliable Rolling Stone magazine, Mission (laughs) Impossible has the 15th greatest theme song in any TV show in history. Higher on the list than The Muppets, higher than The Simpsons, higher than Star Trek. What? Do you think that's a defensible position? First off... Mm. You're on blast, Rolling Stone. Is that a defensible position? I
1: think it's defensible, but it's certainly (laughs) highly subjective.
0: Of the cultural footprint of the show, which started in 1966 and lasted 171 episodes before being cancelled in 73, and then did another 35 episodes from 1988 to 1990, which literally no one remembers, I'd say maybe, what, 5% of that cultural footprint is opening montage that shows you things in the episode you're about to watch. Sure. 5% is maybe... Masks and Mustaches, 5% is maybe Martin Landau, and the rest of it is The Song.
1: Yes. But I'm going to tell you now, I've never seen anything from the TV shows. Like, I've never even seen that sequence. No, not a frame.
0: Oh, well, I'm afraid I'm going to have to contact the authorities, because I think constitutionally (laughs) your father is supposed to have shown you episodes of Mission Impossible when you were a kid.
1: I saw Dragnet, I think.
0: I think everyone is supposed to sit down on a Sunday afternoon and watch at least one episode of Mission Impossible. (laughs) It was actually... A really great show. I'm sure it was. They took a lot of time to create really developed ensemble mini heists, really, right? Like a heist that can happen in 40 minutes that has one, and I was going to say action sequence, but I don't mean action sequence. I mean action sequence by the standards of late 60s, early 70s television. So I mean, you know, three punches are thrown, like uh, someone holds a gun or looks at some other right. kind of weapon. And, Falls yeah.
1: over a trash can. Exactly. Yes. Right.
0: yes. Very Rockford <laughs> Files in yes. that sense, yeah. It's weird how the cultural imprint has become so reduced to just this amazing piece of music, which I think really still holds up, even in this version in the 1996 film where it's arranged by the two members of U2 that most people cannot name. Whoa, yeah, I didn't yeah, know that. Larry Mullins Jr. and Adam Clayton, the drummer and the bass player for Goodness U2 said. arranged this version. Which... Yeah,
1: certainly like the iconicity of the song is undeniable. I'm thinking that both of our boys right now, we would say, hey, do the Mission Impossible theme, and they would immediately dun, 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 dun. And they have never seen a Mission Impossible. Never
0: seen a Mission Impossible. So
1: that's something. Though, could almost watch too, that this Mission Impossible. If somebody asked me right now to give you the thing to Star Trek, I might not be able to do it. <laughs> Which is weird because like, you the have strings like... Rise. Yeah. I rise. Um...
0: <laughs> you have like eight different choices there. That's,
1: I think that's the problem. Yeah. If you can call it a problem.
0: <laughs> right. Like a very nice problem to have. Right. Right. we got too much Star Trek. Bridges, just, just yes. too, too much. <laughs> I think that this is a really great film. We've been looking forward to talking about Mission Impossible. We are, I think it's fair to say, fans, I think, of this franchise.
1: Uh, I hesitate to use the word fan for anything in my life, but I hear what you're Ooh, saying. Ooh,
0: an interesting development here it's on The Last Star and just
1: the word it's just the fanatic. I'm not a fanatic
0: person. Sure. And you would not want to associate yourself with anyone who would describe themselves no. as no. a fanatic No, generally person. <laughs>
1: people who are in a group of fans frighten me just a wee bit. So That's you're all. saying That's that you all. are
0: capable of liking something without entering full-throated into internet discourse? Exactly. Interesting. That is what
1: I am saying. We'll yeah. talk more
0: about this after the show is over <laughs> because I have questions and would maybe like to read a pamphlet. <laughs> Mission Impossible, 1996, the first and really only functional franchise in Tom Cruise's career. This is him deciding that he needs one of these like blockbuster tentpoles. And this is a franchise with a bewildering history because it has never really at any point gone in the expected direction, Mm. including this first effort directed by Brian De Palma. We are going to talk about everything. We are going to make sense of this plot. You guys, I promise (laughs) by the time this show is done, you will know what happens in this film. (laughs) That's more complicated than it may seem on the surface. There's a lot. But before we do all that, it's your trailer game, dear. <laughs> <laughs> all right.
1: Ethan Hunt went to Prague, now all his friends are dead. In the fast-paced world of espionage thrillers. That means he's our most likely suspect. Exploding bubblegum, exploding fish tanks, exploding cars. Faulty elevators and elaborate harnesses await as Tom Cruise is Ethan Hunt, an old senator man, and John Voight. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, get your ass in theaters this summer for Mission Impossible.
0: I love so much the minutiae of Hollywood. I love so much the silly details of like contract negotiations, like who gets their name above the title on the poster, who gets the coveted mm. and position in the credit block. I don't know that their agents would be very happy about crediting Tom Cruise as John Voight.
1: <laughs> he took off a John Voight mask I saw it and happen too. himself.
0: I saw it happen Listen. too. That's not even special effects. Tom Cruise can just do that. He can just do it. The story of Mission Impossible begins with someone who has been in the background of Cruise's career since 1981, since the very beginning, his agent, Paula Wagner, who represented Cruise for CAA and has been with him every step of the way. Their working relationship is so good that in 1992, after 11 years together, they start the independent film production company Cruise Wagner Productions. This gives them more control over the movies that Cruise makes, as well as a larger cut of the profits. Their first project is an adaptation of the TV show that Cruz enjoyed as a child, Mission Impossible. Paramount already has the license, already has an ongoing distribution deal with Cruz, so they are good to go. In 92, Cruz, Wagner and Sidney Pollock who directed the firm, go to work on a story outline. While shooting interview with the Vampire in the beginning of 1994, Cruz is just casually having dinner with Steven Spielberg and is introduced to Brian De Palma, who he immediately taps to direct this film. Brian De Palma is born in New Jersey in 1940 and he is new Hollywood through and through. He's a nerdy kid in high school. He wins a regional science fair and he builds his own computers. This is in the late 1950s where building a computer was, you know, a challenging undertaking. He then enrolls at Columbia to study physics. He completes his undergrad in 62 and is then one of the first male students to ever enroll in Sarah Lawrence pursuing postgrad studies in their theater department. He makes movies and documentaries in New York through the 60s. He leaves for Hollywood in 1970, where he works pretty consistently, but doesn't break until November of 1976 and the release of the Stephen King adaptation, Carrie. Have you seen Carrie?
1: Wow, I have seen Carrie, yeah. Yes,
0: that is the Brian De palma film.
1: Really? It's kind of- It's so of... funny because I saw Brian De Palma's name came up and I was like, yes, Brian De Palma iconic for reasons I cannot recall. So I've really been looking forward to this part of the lecture where you tell me I should call a lecture this part of the podcast.
0: Conversation? <laughs> the conversation, conversation is the word?
1: obviously. No,
0: this is maybe a little more lecture heavy than most because there were just so many things we have to talk about. Normally it's like, we'll talk about the director. We'll talk a little about the production, maybe two actors. Mm-hmm. I've got like eight key actors that we yeah. absolutely have to talk about. So they're going to get short shrift. And I'm going to have to take the reins here just a little bit to, like, orient ourselves in the story of this ridiculous film. The thing about De Palma is that he comes up making these incredibly singular films. He has, like, such a sense of personal style. And some of that continues through even to things like Mission Impossible, even to things that he will do after Mission Impossible. But really, it's his first... Decade in the business, right? It's his first decade as an auto director, starting with Carrie, that really makes his name. As I said, Carrie is in 76. He'll go on to make Scarface in 83. He'll go on to make The Untouchables, the Chicago Way, in 1987. And you can see, I think. A commonality there. You can see see a through line there. He will make the disastrous Bonfire of the Vanities in 1990. That almost kills his career stone dead. He comes back to make Carlito's Way in 93. Mm -hmm. And after Mission Impossible, he'll go on to make the Nicolas Cage film Snake Eyes. He'll make the previously mentioned twin film, Mission to Mars, the Gary Sinise one. Mm -hmm. And he will make an adaptation of the James Elroy novel, The Black Dahlia, in 2006. Oh, yeah. So we can think of these complicated characters with mm-hmm. like friction between them. We can think of a certain griminess yeah. to his sense of time and place. We can think of mm-hmm. grit and also, you know, canted angles. He yes. loves, man loves the Dutch angle. A Dutch angle. Yeah, Absolutely. for sure. Yeah, it's like Kenneth Branagh and Brian De Palma, the two people <laughs> in Hollywood still using canted <laughs> angles. Which is hard to complain about because I think some of the cinematography in this film is fantastic. I really
1: enjoyed it. There were a couple moments especially where it reminded me of film school and learning about German expressionism. Particularly when we were in Prague off the bank of the river and Christian Scott Thomas is walking and she's worried and she's got like her hood or, or like her coat and her collar yes. up and everything is blue and foggy and smoky and slightly canted.
0: And we're cutting between these like very wide shots to get a sense of the space and mm-hmm. then cutting very close in to get the emotional reactions. Right. It's yes. Yeah. Extremely, extremely mm-hmm. kind of mid-century expressionism. And
1: to give the briefest of praises on German expressionism, basically this idea that the setting communicates the interiority of the emotions of the characters. Yeah. Simple as that.
0: Well, and I think that De Palma does that very well in this movie, but also has this you know, parallel mastery of space. Mm-hmm. He can situate you in a space and then explore that space with the camera in a way that is completely communicable to the audience. And anyone who's listened to me podcasting about movies will know, I am kind of obsessed naturally with working out how these spaces work, the, the geography of any given yeah. set. And I get very frustrated when they don't work when, when they are not mm-hmm. true to life, right? Kubrick's Overlook Hotel is just a nightmare <laughs> for me in, in multiple ways. But what happens in this film is that he can situate you in a space and then explore it somewhat playfully, somewhat anarchically through an action sequence, and you never feel anything less than grounded. You never yeah. feel unsure of where you are or where anyone else is. Mm. He manages to communicate that beautifully. And you're right, combining that with this expressionistic ability to reflect the interiority in the exteriority is yes. really striking. It's I, cool. Is this your favorite, De
1: Uh, From that list, yeah. That was a hell of a lot of boy movies, plus Carrie.
0: (laughs) Carrie, also a bit of a boy movie, yeah. A
1: bit, At least in the way that it is
0: shot. But that's part of the story, right? It's very exploitative of of the female form because Mm -hmm. part of what it's doing is trying to make... A movie for teenagers that can be seen in drive-ins. It's it's trying to make a yeah. very. It, it is both the thing that it purports to be and a satire of the thing that it purports yeah. to be, or at least a commentary of the thing that it purports to be. So, gary is at least a more complicated film than that. But yeah, mm-hmm. I was a huge fan of The Untouchables for a long, long time, and then we oh, went back yeah. to watch it just a couple of years ago. Sure, and it doesn't really stand up. It doesn't really hang together. Not as much as, as you would, would want hope. it to. Yeah, there's a little bit. Too much style in that film, and perhaps not enough substance. Mm. Not enough Sean Connery, I think, is really what it comes down to. So early in 1994, having met Cruise, De Palma takes the outline that Cruise has prepared with Pollock and drafts a script, and it is, by all accounts, very bad. They hire Steve (laughs) Zalian, who had just written Clear and Present Danger and Schindler's List. He would go on later to write Hannibal with David Mamet, Moneyball with Aaron Sorkin, and David Fincher's Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Zalian cracks the core idea of the story, but the script still isn't working, so it is passed to David Kep, who had just written Death Becomes Her with Martin Donovan, and Jurassic Park with Michael Crichton. Kep figures out the rest of the plot and produces the first workable version of the script. The project is then greenlit, at which point Kep is fired and replaced Mm. with our old friend Robert Towne, who had worked with Cruz previously on Days of Thunder Mm. and The Firm. By this point, the film is already deep in pre-production with De Palma designing and storyboarding action sequences that have no fixed place in the film. So mm-hmm. Town is in his office working on the story structure just to get an outline of what they are going to do while De Palma privately rehires Cap and works out the details of the plot. At this point, the budget is creeping upwards mm-hmm. from 40 million to 60 million to 80 million. Wow. This is a huge film for the time can you feel that tension between these pre-planned set pieces because this is the thing that we're very familiar with here Mm -hmm. in 2024 right we're very familiar with the idea that marvel movies star wars movies the really big budget you know films that dominate our cultural landscape at this point that they go through this this process called previs pre visualization where you start with three action sequences that you know are going to be in your film and those things take so long to design and then to implement usually you know just inside of a computer, that you have to start on them at the same time that you start on your script. Mm -hmm. So script writers come in knowing, well, there's this fight sequence, and there's this escape sequence, and there's this chase sequence, and those have to be in the script. That feels like a product of modern cinema, but obviously not. Do you feel that those sequences stand out in this film? Do they feel uncomfortable? Or do you think that they did a good job of integrating them into the flow of the plot?
1: I think for this one, it's, it's nicely integrated. I... I mean the plot itself is crazy and convoluted but none of I, I never had the sense of like why are we here how did we get here which I do sometimes have in yeah. in, in other movies that are like action oriented.
0: The three sequences that we know for sure were essentially worked out before mm-hmm. the script was ready was of course the sequence on the train at the end of course the heist sequence in the vault at the CIA and weirdly, the sequence in the cafe with the aquarium exploding. Yeah. That was one that they really wanted mm-hmm. and was in there from it's the beginning. Cool. Though for the longest time, they didn't know who Ethan Hunt was meeting in that scene. They just knew that he had to be there. <laughs> he
1: had to meet somebody. Sure. Yeah. yeah. The only thing for me in this one that stands out is just so ridiculous is the helicopter in the tunnel.
0: It is quite silly.
1: It's just so silly. It's yeah. a little bit hard to, but I mean, this, you know, we've already done the exploding chewing gum twice now. I like, you know that it's a silly, maybe not even silly. You know that it's an over the top kind of movie. So it's, it's like, it's okay because it's fun, I suppose, but Helicopter in the Tunnel, that one's a challenge for me.
0: It's funny that you feel that way because this is very much a response to Bond. Particularly by the time it comes out, right? Goldeneye oh, sure. comes out the year before the first Pierce Brosnan Bond movie, and this is hailed at the time for being grounded, for being about spycraft, and for being about you know smart characters behaving smartly and not using a space-based weapon to blow people up as sure. in Goldeneye.
1: I thought you were saying that Goldeneye was the one that was more about actual spy characters or whatever it was because this is on the heels of roger moore who was like the most ridiculous well
0: yes roger moore is the most ridiculous but we've had two dalton movies between moore and i do always
1: forget about the dalton movies and
0: those are much more grounded and much more grim honestly that's why they are doesn't spend more time in the role it's just that those are yeah those are pretty hard-edged films and bond is a harder-edged character there Mm. no by the time we get to goldeneye It's like, that is a good film and I enjoy it, but it is very silly. It is very exaggerated. James Bond kills 56 people in GoldenEye. Whoa. Most of whom he just shoots. Yeah. Here, Ethan Hunt never fires a gun. Not Uh, in the entire film. Okay. And that is, I think... Very deliberate. That is very mm-hmm. intentional. Bond is still relying on spy gadgets that might as well be magic. And the yeah. fact that here we do the legwork, right? We have weird sequences where we're typing things into a computer. We yeah. have actual hardware that we're interacting with. We get to see the mechanisms of how we're performing these, yes, yeah, slightly cartoonish, slightly exaggerated action sequences, but mostly we're grounding things in Cruz's intelligence and physicality. Yeah. In Hunt's intelligence and physicality. Sure, sure. I guess.
1: So I guess it really is the exploding gum is the outlier there. The
0: exploding gum, yeah. But also that's, you know, basically realistic, right? That you can smoosh together two compounds and they will explode. Yeah. I mean, again, not completely grounded. This isn't born, right? This pendulum will continue to swing and it Mm -hmm. will take us all the way to the born identity. But this is much more grounded than what we've already got from the Brosnan Bonds. And of course, they're just going to get bigger and sillier. We're (laughs) going to get a vanishing Aston Martin. (laughs) And there's only, you know, so much you can do. And Yeah, I like the Brosnan Bonds just fine. Mm -hmm. But this is trying to do something, I think, very different.
1: Hmm.
0: We've got an absolutely huge cast to talk about. Yes, let's. Should we get into it? Mm. Emilio Estevez, let's do him first. Uncredited in the movie... And there's no real consensus on why. Some say it's because the part is so small. Some say that small. It's not. I think that's not a very strong argument, honestly. Some say it's because he didn't want the film to be marketed on his name because he dies so early. Some Mm -hmm. say that it is payback for Tom Cruise appearing uncredited in Young Guns. (laughs) Okay, maybe. The story that I favor here is that the entire original group, the entire IMF crew that gets killed in the opening movement of the story they were all supposed to be uncredited. That was the original concept was, we're not going to credit anyone because then you don't know who lives and who dies. It creates a real sense of tension and uncertainty so that when they all die, it will be even more of a shock to the audience. Emilio Estevez signs on early while they're still thinking that, but then it takes a long time for them to find the rest of the crew. By that point, they've kind of revised what they are thinking. You know, agents have got involved, all this stuff. So everyone else gets credited. And poor Emilio... Does not get credited. I think he's fantastic in this film. Fantastic in this film.
1: I see you, Emilio. I think he's great. It is wild
0: to me that someone didn't just back up the money truck to his house to get him involved in Ocean's Eleven.
1: Oh, yeah. He's such a natural as Mm -hmm. a part of a
0: crew like this. And of course, we've seen him be a part of a crew. (laughs) We've certainly seen him be a part of a team before. (laughs) But it's so great to see him in, yeah, this this nerdy hacker role. It's, yeah, a ton of fun. You enjoy him?
1: I do very much. Yeah, I like it.
0: And of course we've talked about Emilio before on our episode on the outsiders. Yes. From there, let's talk about John Voight. Shall we? Oh god, if <laughs> Who, we must. Yeah, well, we just <laughs> talked about him a little bit because we discussed Angelina Jolie in the context of Gone in 60 seconds over on the Patreon feed that was our bonus episode for the month of January. And yeah, I mean, what's the most interesting thing about John Voight? He's Angelina Jolie's dad, right? He has kind of tanked his career so completely, tanked his personal reputation so completely that that's kind of all that's left which is shocking, right? He's born in 1938. He graduates from the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. In 1960, he attends the Neighborhood Playhouse School of Theater in New York. He works under Meisner. He goes from stage to screen in less than a decade. He breaks in Midnight Cowboy in 1969. Then he appears in Catch-22 and in Deliverance. And he is this firecracker of a performer. He's this rebellious, countercultural figure. He's turning in these incredibly, you know... It's Meisner, right? So he's giving Mm -hmm. these incredibly raw edged and kind of authentic seeming performances. And he's a real standout. And then his politics go real sour, real Mm. fast. He goes from protesting the Vietnam War to, you know, appearing on stage with Donald Trump like last year, like literally very recently. It's, it's, It's bad news. He'll appear much later in Heat, in The Rainmaker. He is FDR in Pearl Harbor. He's in National Treasure with Nicolas Cage, of course. Oh, yeah. He plays Nicolas Cage's dad in National Treasure, weirdly. And he'll appear again in this series. We'll have one more opportunity to talk about John Voight here in The Last Star in Hollywood because he appears as himself in a cameo in Tropic Thunder, just in case you weren't worried enough about that episode. Yoinks. It's going to be so much fun. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, I mean, his personal politics are extremely bad. And I don't think he's good in this film. I think that he is mm. way past the point of delivering an actual performance.
1: Yeah, I'm neither here nor there with him. It's it's just it's such a tropey role.
0: But I would argue that this film is comprised of tropey roles. The, you so know, I don't think, that's a point. That's a point. I don't think we're breaking new ground in terms of characterization here. But most everyone is giving some interesting perspective on it. We're giving sure. some depth and grit. And Voight is, yeah, hardcore not.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that's fair.
0: When we're talking about people giving. Slightly more than is on the page, perhaps, in this film. Let's talk about Emmanuel Burt, shall we? Should we talk about Claire?
1: Oh, yes.
0: What do you think of her in this film?
1: I think she's lovely. I haven't seen her in anything else that comes to mind, have she's I? She's
0: done almost nothing. Yeah, She's okay. very successful in French-language film, but really mm, not in okay. English-language, yeah. Uh, she's
1: she... way too lovely and young for John Boyd. That's for goddamn 25 sure.
0: 25 years Ooh. is the age difference nope, between nope, nope. Phelps and Claire, yes. It is at least
1: supposed to be, like, it's canonically gross, so I guess that's all right. Is it? Yes. I think when he says that gross thing about having tasted the goods yeah, and her eyes like do that thing that we realize that the writers know that this is gross.
0: I think, oh, yes. Okay. It is recontextualized at the end of the film as gross. Yes, that's true. But yes. I do think that when we're playing it straight at the beginning of the film, it's really super unpleasant.
1: Yeah. Okay. Fair enough.
0: Emmanuelle Bart is extremely cool, is the thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's trained in Montreal and then in Paris. She works almost exclusively, as I said, in French. She's arrested in 1997 in Paris for a public protest defending the rights of illegal immigrants to France. Mm. She has continued to advocate for the rights of immigrants ever since. In 2003, aged 40, she appeared nude in the French magazine Elle, making it immediately the highest selling issue in the magazine's history. And this is a magazine with a long and prestigious history And she blew the doors off. She is just a remarkable figure, I think, in real life and gives, well, I get the sense in this film that she is striving to give an even better performance, Mm. but that the film itself is kind of being inflexible around her.
1: Her character is a little flimsy. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I like her well enough, but I can feel her pushing against it, but it never really rises above like, a B-grade, pretty decent performance. Mm. We still have so many actors to cover. Henry Journey is our next. The Canadian actor born in Toronto, also trained in Montreal, weirdly, known for his theater work before transitioning to TV and film. Mission Impossible is his big break. In fact, he'll follow it up being fantastic in The Ice Storm in 1997 and a safe pair of hands in so many TV shows over the years from The Tudors to Falling Skies to Supergirl, among others. Believe it or not, we're going to talk about him again because Kittredge comes back in Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part wow. 1 slash Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. The naming convention wow. is unclear at this point. Yeah, okay. They bring him back after all those years. That's I love nuts. It.
1: He's yeah. the one that doesn't necessarily work for me of all of them.
0: See, I was thinking of him when I was talking about people delivering a little bit more. He than, is delivering a little get. bit yeah. more,
1: but I don't always think that more is better.
0: Ooh, interesting.
1: Yeah. He's almost cartoonish to me. There's something like voice actor about what he's doing, oh, if that makes any sense at all.
0: Yeah, I think that he is maybe, as as his career demonstrates, he is maybe a little more suited to stage and television yeah, than yeah. he is to film. I kind of like how elevated he is just because it is, it, it gives this very stock, very traditional character just a little more hmm. complexity and dimensionality. But you're right. The alternative way to go there would have been to give that character just gravitas. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Get he does, a, get a know, Mitch
0: Pelleggi to do that.
1: Yeah, I love Mitch Pelleggi. I would have loved to see him here. This is much more... Hugo Weaving. This is much more like Agent Smith, (laughs) I think. It's just a lot.
0: That's a funny pull that you should alight on Hugo Weaving, that you should alight specifically on Agent Smith, because someone in this cast was offered the role of Agent Smith and turned it down before it went to Hugo Weaving. I'm talking, of course, of of course, like Hugo Weaving stands next to this guy and you think, wait, is there one man standing there reflected in a mirror because they're so identical? Jean Reno was offered the role of Agent Smith. Isn't that wild? That is
1: weird. Yeah. Jean Reno
0: might be the most interesting man in the world. Uh-huh. He's born in Casablanca in 1948. He's the son of Spanish parents. At 17, he moves to France. He serves in the army before becoming an actor and then forges a relationship with the controversial and not at all cool Luc Besson. Mm-hmm. One of those directors who allegations came to light, and not allegations, actual you know, crimes committed came to light. And that has really trashed a few of my favorite movies that I really liked oh. in the 1990s. Mm. Renault is in La Femme Nikita and Leon the Professional. He begins appearing in American movies with French Kiss in 1995. Oh yeah, sure. He's really good as the frustrated French detective following yeah. Kevin Kline. Just he's a cute really in that. great role. He'll go on from Mission Impossible to appear in Ronin and Godzilla in 1998 oh, and The Da Vinci yeah. Code in 2006. He will be the voice of Mufasa in the French-language live-action version of The Lion King That's in so 2019. Wow. He will not be in The Matrix. <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> it's so wild to think about what that could have been, what that could have looked like. Do you yeah. like Jean Reno? Uh, well enough, sure.
1: I don't think about Jean Reno. I'm surprised
0: by that. I, I would have thought that, that he would be your type of guy.
1: I, I never saw La Femme Nikita or Leon The Professional. So I've really only seen him in these other like sillier, lighter roles, I guess.
0: Ah, sure. Where he's being brought in as like French stunt casting yeah, like, definitely. In, in the same way as you would deploy like a Paul Hogan as like, you know, here's someone who's not American, but you can kind of get their whole cultural shtick sure, yeah. just from how they look and speak. Yeah, mm. I can see that. He's he's maybe not at his best in Godzilla, certainly, which is probably Such his a terrible movie. highest profile role, I would say. Mm, could be. Yeah. I'm sure you got a payday for it, though. Oh, I'm sure. Let's talk about Irving Ramses Rames. Love oh, yeah. Ving Rames. Ving Rames. Irving Ramsey's Rames. That's The rare example cooler. of a guy whose real name is cooler than his stage name. <laughs> Do you know who gives him this? Just a little trivia about Ving Rames. Do you know who gives him the nickname Ving while they are studying together at uh, SUNY Purchase, at, at the uh, Purchase College in the State University of New York?
1: I have no idea. Stanley Tucci. Oh, like, I love Stanley of Tucci. Of course it's, it's Stanley That's... Tucci. Fantastic. Calls
0: Ving Rhames Ving. Aww. Isn't that
1: awesome? I wonder if Ving called him Tooch. I
0: I can only imagine. I hope so. (laughs) And then they kissed. (laughs) (laughs) He goes to Juilliard. He graduates in Group 12 alongside Evan Handler and Kelly McGillis and Kevin Spacey. Mm -hmm. He does good work in Dave in 1993, but of course, really breaks as Marcellus Wallace in Pulp Fiction and has kind of been in the shadow of that role forever. Although, he will appear in every single Mission Impossible film. And yeah. this is his career now, is just cool. being in these films and and honestly being Ving Rhames. Mm-hmm. He's pretty great here. Do you like Luther here?
1: Oh, very much. Yeah. I like him a lot. He's Isn't he also in Out of Sight? Is yes, somebody, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Steven Soderbergh's yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, similar characters. I like yeah. it. It's a great gig for him.
0: I think so too. We're going to radically reappraise the character of Luther specifically. <laughs> like, basically, what's going to happen in the first film, Ving rames is playing a character called Luther. In the between second and third films, Luther is going to become Ving rames just on screen. Like, he's just <laughs> going to become the guy. Sure. I think he just wears his clothes from home from that point <laughs> on. It's pretty fantastic. Cool. Let's talk about Kristen Scott Thomas, I who is born yeah, in Cornwall wonderful. in 1962. A fairly prestigious family, actually. These Scott Thomases are like well-known. They're not quite aristocratic, though they are connected to the aristocracy mm. in multiple ways. Both her father and her stepfather are pilots in the Royal Navy, both die in accidents while oh, flying god. aircraft. The former in 1965 when she is five years old, oh. the latter in 1972 when she is 12 years oh old.
1: My god!
0: She's educated privately, then enrolls in the Central School of Speech and Drama to become a drama teacher. Her initial mm. career goal is simply to be a drama teacher. After graduating, though, she moves to Paris to study acting. She wins a BAFTA for her supporting role in Four Weddings and a Funeral, in which, ah. in which she is just brilliant and yeah. is maybe the best example of that Richard Curtis archetype. You know, he just keeps writing the same people over right, and over right. in all of his various films. And I don't think he ever gets that character better than Kristen Scott Thomas Mm. in that film. Much more importantly, of course, in 1996, she appears in Mission Impossible and in The English Patient, for which she receives an Academy Award nomination for Best Actress. She's in Gosford Park in Mm -hmm. 2001. She's in The Other Boleyn Girl in 2008. Mm. She's in Salmon Fishing in the Yemen in 2011 with Ewan McGregor. She's in Darkest Hour, the Churchill drama in 2017. Mm. And she's in the Alicia Vikander Tomb Raider movie in 2018, Which I guess creates a strange resonance with John Voight, who is also in a Lara Croft movie, except (laughs) his was in 2001. I think that Scott Thomas is genuinely terrific in this film. I think it is such a throwback golden age of Hollywood. You're right. All of that expressionism, all of that noir light across her face is just so beautiful. Just just a timeless loveliness to her performance. Yeah,
1: here. there's an Ingrid Bergman something happening there for Absolutely, sure.
0: Absolutely, yeah. But she's also so light on her feet and playful yeah. too, and so competent. I really, obviously we'll talk about it, but this opening sequence is just brilliant. It's really great, yeah. We should mention, uh, and, and forgive me for the pronunciation, I'm not going to do 17 takes of this trying to get it right, because I will never get it right. Ingeborga depkunite I believe. Whoa, This is okay. a mangled translation, and I'm very sorry to Just everyone involved. Uh, This is the actress who plays Hannah, the other member of the IMF team. She is Lithuanian. She's born in 63 when Lithuania is, of course, still a part of the Soviet Union. Her other major English language role, just because all of these films connect in unexpected ways, she plays Brad Pitt's wife in Seven Years in Tibet wow Yeah, weird okay in the 2000s she'll appear regularly on british television including the lost prince and prime suspect and uh kenneth branagh's wallander series his adaptation of european just dour european mysteries I, uh, I
1: don't know that one
0: and according to the internet she plays mrs hudson in a 2012 russian adaptation of sherlock holmes whoa which is a thing that i might have to see yeah i'm gonna have to try and track that down Unfortunately, she gets almost nothing to do, but she does look fantastic in those very silly sunglasses.
1: Silly spy sunglasses. Yeah. like anyone wearing those sunglasses to this party is a spy. It's such a strange
0: choice. Silly spy sunglasses might have been a good subtitle for the Mission right? Impossible franchise. And then franchise. she
1: like taps them and they go even darker. You're yep. like, oh, honey. <laughs> so covert. So covert. So covert. <laughs> also, Kristen's got Thomas spraying the guy's back of his head with oh. like, perfume. Like, oh sure, that's totally
0: natural. But it's so good. <laughs> it's let, no, it's let a me great visual this trick. It as my works. theory. <laughs> it's very silly, but it's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> Lastly, we have to talk about the brilliant, the genuinely legendary dame vanessa redgrave oh
1: she's extraordinary
0: born into the redgrave acting dynasty in 1937 her birth is announced on stage at the old vic during a production of hamlet by sir laurence olivier holy because her father michael redgrave is in the the cast of that production Mm -hmm. and olivier addresses the audience and tells them quote a great actress has been born this night oh Like Kristen Scott Thomas, Redgrave is educated independently and then also attends the Central School of Speech and Drama, and then takes to the stage, appearing first in A Midsummer Night's Dream and Coriolanus the latter of which she appears opposite Olivier himself cool. in 1959. In 1966, she originates the role of Miss Jean Brody in Muriel Sparks' The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. Is that a text that you... Not that at all. That is such a fixture of like public education in Scotland that I find it surprising always that people have not like read it and yeah. internalized it. It is to Scotland what... like mice and men is to american public schooling right except that it is fiercely feminist in an off-kilter kind of really like it's preempting second wave feminism in this really rich and interesting way it's a great i I will maybe talk about that someday soon over on stars and swords Mm. because it's such a great text and muriel spark is you know a a, a scottish cultural legend she is so important yeah Vanessa Redgrave wins the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress in 1977 for the movie Julia and has five other Academy Award nominations. She has 148 acting credits on IMDb, including Howard's End and Atonement and The Gathering Storm. Mm. I mentioned the other, the the Gary Oldman uh, Churchill movie. The Gathering Storm is a vastly superior Churchill movie. If you have to watch one of the two, go watch The Gathering Storm starring Vanessa Redgrave. It is so brilliant. And that doesn't take into account her stage work or her lifelong political activism. She is awarded the Commander of the Order of the British Empire, the CBE, in 1967. She's offered a damehood in 1999, presumably as a response to this film, and she declines, but then accepts the rank of Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire in 2022. Dame Vanessa Redgrave, serious business. Awesome.
1: and Dame Commander, that's
0: cool. So fantastic in this film. Yeah, yeah. She's also wonderful. another actor I think that is really wildly overdelivering mm. on a role that is pretty stock. Although I mean, you do get a lot of of juice. You get a lot of fuel out of gender flipping that stock character. I think so much when
1: you're just, I mean, you name this character Max and I'm just absolutely expecting some dude in a tie. And then we get Vanessa Redgrave in her incredible blue suit. And I was just thrilled. Like I had seen her name in the credits, but I had forgotten by then because it was just going on and there are so many people. So people. (laughs) So I was just thrilled.
0: It's one of those great stories too where they're kicking this idea around in the writer's room. They're very excited about gender flipping this character. Yeah. And they're like, You know what would be really great? You know what would be great would get someone like get someone like get someone like Vanessa Redgrave. <laughs> like, like obviously we can't get Vanessa Redgrave, obviously. but get someone like Vanessa Redgrave. And then yeah. And she's yeah. just so fantastic in this film. Mm. So fantastic. Principal photography for this film takes place in Prague and back on the 007 soundstage at Pinewood, sure, sure. which should probably just at this point be renamed the Tom Cruise soundstage at Pinewood. <laughs> there are some exteriors and pickup shots in Scotland and in London and in the US. The train sequence at the end mm-hmm. featuring the, the TGV, the train aux grand vitesse, forgive my awful French.
1: That's okay. That, that's a real train?
0: That is a real train. Yes. Oh, yes. Of course. This is another transatlantic. No, thing, no, no. I think. Yeah, I had no yeah. idea what they were talking
1: about. Catching the TGV, it'll be on the TGV, and I'll see you on the TGV. I was like, I don't know what you're saying. So valuable. But then they gave us TGV on like that was yeah. they, they very prominent. We're like, this is what the TGV is. It is a train, and I was very grateful for. Ignorant Americans. Valuable like
0: context for this film is that in 1994, two years before this film is released, mm-hmm. the Channel Tunnel opens. This is the tunnel that they bore beneath the English Channel. The channel, so the channel, okay, exactly, yeah, okay. so that you can get on the train in London and get off the train in Paris.
1: Ah, uh, yeah, that is yeah.
0: brand new and very exciting. Like that is hailed at the time as as one of the great engineering achievements of yeah. like humanity, right? Mm-hmm. That, that is like a a peak moment in our engineering history. So it's very relevant and it's very exciting and cool so that's why the, the otherwise quite prosaic action secrets at the end of this film of a train in a tunnel yeah is more exciting and is at least more culturally loaded than it might seem to be yeah. in the film in 2024
1: so that tunnel was the tunnel.
0: i mean not really no but yes, well, yeah, it but, is supposed know. to be yes, yeah. yeah
1: okay okay
0: i get it tgv though because they are cool and relevant and riding high aren't really that interested in being in a film Particularly a film that will involve one of their trains being chased by a helicopter down the tunnel. Tom Cruise takes the entire senior management of TGV out to dinner. The following morning, permission is very quietly granted. Mm. He's a charmer. Cool. He's a charmer, that guy. The wind machine that is used to simulate the winds on top of the, you know, fake elements of the train, they do use a real wind machine that is capable of generating 140 mile per hour winds. They were originally going to use a much more conventional machine that can generate winds of up to 60 miles an hour. So you get like the flapping shirt and the hair is back and so on and so forth. And crew said, no, that's not realistic. My face needs to be distorted. I need to look like. Yes. Yeah. This is the real Tom Cruise action star that we will get in the two and a half decades that follow this film, I think. There is one wind machine in all of Europe that can generate (laughs) that kind of wind. So they buy it and transport it. Wow. Two, weirdly, just outside of Glasgow, a lot of those exteriors are shot Mm. in the Scottish lowlands. That's very cool. Okay. Alan Silvestri is hired to write the original score for the film, but it is rejected very late in the day. And Danny Elfman is hired to write a whole new score in only a few weeks. Wow. Which is presumably why it sounds like that. I
1: was going to say, I didn't notice the Danny elfman until you mentioned it, and now I hear it.
0: There are a couple of, yes, signature Elfman yeah, yeah. elements. Okay. But really the thing about this score is that it is incredibly blunt. It is incredibly forceful hmm. in its attempt to, you know underline and emphasize the emotional content of the scene there are a couple of moments particularly when we're back in the safe house and we're we're switching pretty quickly from this is a light comedic moment to this is a moment of like ominous foreshadowing to this is sudden tension where the score is just all over the place Mm. and is is switching at
1: the time i did notice that every time the theme comes in cool though it may be it's so loud oh my god
0: (laughs) it is prominent i was having a real
1: turn it up turn it down moment Yeah. yeah
0: The version of this theme song that's written by Larry Mullen Jr. and Adam Clayton of U2 is the core of a very successful Mission Impossible soundtrack album, which features three pieces of Danny Elfman music. Mm -hmm. That arrangement of the Mission Impossible theme... The cranberry song that we get right at the very end of the film oh, when yeah. uh, Tom Cruise and Ving Rains, and Ving Rains are Rains, outside yeah, the yeah. pub, and then I a bunch of songs that are just kind of like thematically connected, or just a bunch of songs that are cool at that moment. Sure. We've got Pulp and Massive Attack and Bjork, yeah, the yeah. fantastic British band Skunk and Nancy, which never really, I think, made it in the no, US, but I don't were think so. fantastic, like like punk rock band in the mid nineteen nineties. Just Really terrific stuff. So, yeah, it's a great soundtrack album despite having little <laughs> to nothing to do with the content of the film. It's <laughs> vibes only, right? Vibes-based vibes based soundtrack That's design. Cool. I love that. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Mission Impossible is the first movie in the United States in the history of cinema to be released in more than 3,000 theaters simultaneously. Wow. It broke records for a Wednesday opening, it broke oh, records for an okay. opening weekend in May, it broke records for the Memorial Day weekend and six day box office That's records. Awesome. It is huge when it is released. It opens the same week as Heaven's Prisoners, a completely forgotten thriller starring Alec Baldwin and mm-hmm. Kelly Lynch. Flipper, the adaptation oh, yeah. of the Australian TV show starring Paul Hogan and Elijah Wood. And in theaters that same weekend, uh, we've got week two of Twister. We've got week three of The Craft. We've got week four of The Truth About Cats and Dogs. Wow. And week 27 of Toy Story. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Sure.
1: Wow. Toy Story was before Twister. That doesn't seem right in my brain.
0: Yeah, but like a half a year. Isn't yeah. that crazy? Okay. Yeah. Finishing out at a cost of $80 million, the movie makes $458 million worldwide, finishing third for the year, right behind Twister, which makes more money, and Independence Day, which makes basically twice as much money. Sure. Independence, Independence Day was
1: very cool. An
0: impossible hit yeah, in 1996. such a big movie. Yeah. Oh, and of course, it is third in the rankings, just above the fourth-ranked movie, Jerry Maguire, because (laughs) this is Tom Cruise's year. The movie is somewhat controversial on its release in a very minor and well-mannered way because the cast members from the original TV show do not like what this film is doing to the character of Jim Phelps, who was originally played by Peter Graves in the TV series, both the 60s, 70s TV series and the late 80s version, too. And not to dismiss the feelings of those actors... But it is wild that that would be a controversy. Now, that would not be a controversy in 2024. We are now so deeply enmeshed Gen- in the okay. idea of IP, yeah. right? There is no purity to any kind of depiction on screen there's no association between an actor and a character characters yeah. can be recast at any moment entire texts entire franchises can be reimagined and relaunched and rebooted at any moment mm-hmm. the idea that you could be upset because peter graves is not playing jim phelps in this film yeah. that that jim phelps is turned into a villain in this film sure, and th- that, that i get a little bit somehow wrong. hurts the legacy of mission impossible which by the way had zero to no legacy at that time yeah it's it's Oddly charming (laughs) in how, like, yeah, in how small and well mannered and kind of prosaic that objection was at the time. The critical response to this film is somewhat mixed, and that's due in part to De Palma refusing to give promotional interviews for the film right before its release. There's a sense that something Hmm. is uneasy about Life on Set. The truth of it is that De Palma and Cruz did not get along at all. And huh. that kind of makes sense because De Palma is an alter director, sure. right? He is a guy you hire because of his vision. But this is the first movie in which Cruz is really running the show. Yeah. It's his yeah. production company. He's it's producing. his idea. It's his yeah. outline. It's his input on the action sequences, on how things are framed and shot, and, and certainly on how he performs his own stunts. Yeah, This is the Cruz show. And apparently that rubs De Palma the wrong way. Yeah, and the two do not get along and obviously do not work together. Again. And that is the exhaustive history of Mission Impossible. Wow. It's a lot. There's so much. Yeah. There's just so much. It is such an important film. And I haven't even really talked about how interesting it is that this is the point in Cruz's career when he decides to pivot toward a franchise, right? Mm. This is clearly made with an eye on sequels for the first time in his entire career. This is this is the movie that is going to be the start of something that is going to endure. And that's Interesting. It's so representative of 1996 in movie making, right? It's so representative of where Cruz is in his career that he is the undisputed king of Hollywood at this point. He has more power than maybe anyone else in the industry at this time. Maybe Spielberg, right? Mm. Maybe Spielberg is up there too. But this is his play for serious action movie credentials. And the fact that it works is astonishing to me. Hmm. Let's get into it. Shall we? Are you excited to talk a little about this film?
1: It's. I mean, it's fun and it's crazy. So yeah, a little bit.
0: We have this incredibly stylish opening where we open in oh, yeah. Kiev where the mission is already underway. It's it's so awesome to have Emilio Estevez watching this thing unfold on TV. Do you remember watching this for the first time? Do you remember your experience of the masks in no, particular and how we play really. with identity?
1: No, I, I was... This, this came out, what were we saying? 95, 96? 96, 96. 96. Yeah. yeah. So I was old enough. That puts me in sixth grade. So I, I was old enough to like start to get these kinds of movies because i liked golden eye a lot i liked james bond and i liked this one so i remember that i enjoyed it as like a romp but i i just don't really recall that kind of like specific response to it
0: it is a difficult film to follow it is a film oh, that definitely. does surprisingly yeah. little handholding mm-hmm. in terms of where we are with the plot it manages to mostly i think land the emotional notes yeah but the details of the plot can be slippery. It yes. can be a little <laughs> tricky. Yeah. Not least of all, because we will establish very quickly, very briefly, what a knocklist is, and right. then we will say the phrase knocklist 78 times.
1: It's so handy that in the CIA they label that very secret file. Knocklist. <laughs> I thought that was, you know, that's oh, kind of them.
0: We're getting to the best part of this film so early. <laughs> Sorry. All of the computer tech in this film. Is bananas right? I love it with my whole heart <laughs> because this is very much that mid nineties like concept of what the internet yeah. will look like, yeah. And we're not and there as yet. It might well be magic, yeah. So it's just all fabricated, and and the audience doesn't know. So it has to be transparent to yeah, the audience's understanding and it, oh my what's going god it's yeah. so, when he is searching for max and he sits down in front of his laptop goes to this usenet search option and types in max.com <laughs> it is the greatest it's worst thing it's gonna be thing. porn
1: son it's so
0: <laughs> i think it's owned by hbo actually <laughs> <laughs> probably you're right now <laughs> it's so bad our understanding of computers is like On the one hand, so sophisticated, and Mm. then on the other, just so ridiculous. And all of that mid-90s UI design is just, it's fantastic in its badness. Yeah. Ah, we were talking about this yesterday.
1: I find it so fascinating because I was like, oh, I don't know. We had a computer. We had the internet in 95 and 96. We had that cool Acer Aspire and it was black and it was awesome. <laughs> and you were like, oh, no, you had AOL. You that had wasn't AOL. the internet, yep. which I did not know. I was today. I was yesterday years old when I learned that I didn't have the internet no. in 1995. I had AOL. And
0: very few people did, different. right? Because between CompuServe and AOL yeah. and, and other equivalents around the world, the Wild West of the internet wasn't really open to most people at that point we were existing within walled gardens and hey
1: thank god wasn't that nice yes (laughs) wasn't
0: that maybe in some ways better
1: (laughs) maybe better
0: (laughs) i love the conceit right here this is a very de palma conceit right Mm. at the beginning of this film where we are watching the events of the film through this four by three crt television right emilio Mm. estevez is watching this unfold in exactly the same way as the audience at home would watch mission impossible i absolutely love that that resonance and and the the distance that he 's creating between the audience and Tom Cruise to start with Emilio, and I know that Emilio has a character name in this film i 'm never going to remember what it is. I know that we shout it several times <laughs> after he gets killed by an elevator <laughs> i 'm never going to remember it he 's just Emilio Jack, Estevez. Jack probably is Jack his name. okay
1: i I mostly remember this because I just love the name Jack. I really like it's a good it. good name, Yeah.
0: good solid workman like name right mm-hmm. there, yeah. So we get the mask reveal that this is Cruz. We get the reveal that the girl on the bed is not in fact dead, though. I love the way that we're already teasing that, right? It's, smart enough and it's confident enough that it will let the audience to some extent yeah. in on the magic trick because we being see performed.
1: like the the girl behind jack we see enough of her costuming yeah. because it's that like frulein looking weird outfit that she's wearing yeah where when she enters the frame of the screen that he's watching we realize that that room is connected it's such a cool sequence yeah and
0: even he gets that line she's been under too long right so yeah, we're, we're yeah, already yeah, yeah, building yeah. this tension mm-hmm. it's just fantastic. What do you think of Cruz's look in this film? Because that moment where he tears off that we get the rubber tearing, which is so obviously it's partly a digital effect too. But when we tear off the mask Mm -hmm. and... It's this very specific 1996 Cruise, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. Tearing off the mask is cool. The mask itself is very terrible. Like it, the <laughs> the bad aged mask is so awful. But the nice thing is that it clues you in immediately that you're like, oh, this isn't what it appears to be. And then almost immediately after that, oh, that's Tom Cruise.
0: It is kind of wild how much it looks like Cruise, yeah. even under all of that prosthetics. Most of the masks that we will see in this film are... To some extent or other real effects. They they yeah. are actual oh, prosthetics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not so much the John Voigt one at the end. No. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Cruise's look overall, his leather jacket, deep V, very short but aggressively spiky haircut.
1: Is he uh, working for you here? Yeah. I, I feel yeah, like sure. this is
0: either peak Cruise for you or this is not your I cruise. mean,
1: it's just so of an era. It's so 96. Yeah. It's so, like, I just see all of these you know, MTV music videos with the guys with that haircut and that very shiny, shiny jacket, you know, Iris, where the the Goo -Goo Goo -Goo Dolls dolls (laughs) is like spinning in the chair with the telescope. Like, it's just a look from that time. Yeah. Exactly
0: that vibe. Yeah. Mm. From there, we cut to the title sequence. And it's a very faithful Mission Impossible title sequence, right? We get the music. We get the typography. We get the fuse. And we get... Yeah, yeah, yeah. The montage of shots from later in the film.
1: Which I didn't know. It was a throwback to the film film show. That's really right cool. They're in the front whole film. of you. Yeah, kind of wild.
0: It's so good. <laughs> I really love how it's put together. I think this is a film that puts an incredibly strong foot forward. I think that first this Kiev stuff, then this title sequence, mm-hmm. then we're in Prague, right? The briefing yeah. scene lags a little bit, mm. but the way that the Prague sequence plays out is so exciting like to establish you in this world so completely and then subvert it so quickly yeah it's it's masterful storytelling it really is it really yeah is. it's a great start we cut the cutaway to Phelps on the plane where he gets, of course, the other element of Mission Impossible. Mm-hmm. I didn't even think about this, right? So it's it's five percent uh, Martin Landau, and it's five percent masks, and it's five percent you know exploding tapes, right? This tape yeah. will self destruct in five I seconds.
1: Just, yeah, I can't go with you on the this is like real spying, and it's and it's not as silly as James Bond. The more I think about it, the more I think it's
0: it's maybe sillier. I think you need to go back and watch Goldeneye. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> And like Maybe Brosnan just right. kind of silly. I mean, the thing is, right, that, that what we're really doing here is we are orienting Mission Impossible around spycraft in a way mm. that Bond by this point is really not about spycraft, right? You go back to Connery, and he is a spy, at least in his first couple of films, sure. at least in Doctor No. Like, he is a spy. James Bond is a superhero.
1: Yeah, yeah. He
0: is an action star superhero and does very little spy craft, really. Yeah, okay, okay. I think the idea here that these people are smart, that Mm -hmm. they are savvy, that they solving mysteries of some kind. Exactly. That they're not just rolling in and having sex and firing assault rifles. Like it's it's a different energy. But you're right, maybe it's just silly in a slightly different direction. (laughs) It is, I will say, a direction that I really like.
1: Oh yeah, it's fun.
0: What do you think of this sequence on the plane with the delivery of the tape? I-, I guess you hate this. <laughs> no, I don't hate it.
1: I think it's fun. I know it's 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 good. I love because she was like, "Would you like to watch a film, sir?" No, that's all right. Thank you. Can I interest you in the Ukrainian cinema? <laughs> yes. So why don't you pick it for me? I was like, oh, this is cool. This is fun. Yeah. And then when we repeat it with the Caribbean. which Of is, course. Okay. Which yes. we don't get
0: in Mission Impossible 2. I, I, I was like, wait
1: yeah. a minute. Do we go to the Caribbean? I don't remember. There is an island. I don't it's know. all
0: right. It looks like we're going to make like six more of these things. It's going to be fine. <laughs> Cruise is just re-upped. No, I, I'm going to be, ma- yeah, Mission Impossible 20 will come out when I'm 81 years old. And, and that'll probably be the end of the franchise. Wink to camera. It's not really going to be the end of the franchise, you guys. Are you surprised that this $80 million blockbuster movie, the largest opening in cinema history, are you surprised that they stop the action completely so that we can get a, what, 90-second briefing tape that is just like- Oh, like
1: on the plane with- On the
0: plane, yeah, just sepia-toned with like the world's most boring voiceover. Like,
1: probably. not even because so I can't really remember it, which makes me think that, that's right. This guy's name is this, and he's really a spy. And then you don't actually need to know any of those things later. Yeah, that probably could have gotten cut. Yeah, this or is at where edited we edited down for time.
0: Where we set up Glitzen, right? Our our yeah. US defector in Prague who already has one half of the knock, yeah. and wants the yeah. other half of the knock. Like, okay, you guys, come on. Like this is this is a lot. I like it. I like the aesthetic of it, sure. but I like it because it's so unconventional because <laughs> I can't imagine how they were allowed to do it. I really can't. The real briefing though takes place when we get to Prague when Phelps gets the team together in that room and we talk about him being absent from Kiev because he was in Chicago staying at the Drake at the Hotel. Drake
1: Hotel. Call
0: back to risky mm-hmm. business is what I'm saying. This is a direct <laughs> reference to the filmography of Tom Cruise, is all I can imagine. Claire and Ethan and Jim have this cozy little polycule thing going, yeah. too.
1: Yeah. I it feels that way. It's, it's does, interesting. Doesn't it? yeah. Well, and then obviously Jim uses that to manipulate him later. So
0: This is also where we establish the explosive gum that we'll need for later. It's also where we establish yeah. that the real life senator that ethan hunt is going to impersonate this
1: so he is supposed to be a real life senator okay i wasn't sure if that's what was happening or when he said you're going to be there in character yes if that's because he was always part of his big psy op thing what does psy op mean people keep calling taylor psychological operation
0: so dumb (laughs) Uh, and don't say people say assholes
1: okay (laughs) (laughs) yes I thought that was implied, but yes. Anyway, and I was like, what does that mean? Okay, so, but I was trying to figure out like, is he always that senator? Because this is like no. how we're kind of keeping, you know, I mean, it could be one hand in politics and one hand in espionage. I don't espionage think and,
0: that he has time to, to I don't think so, go probably and vote on some agricultural bill.
1: No. And have, uh, <laughs>
0: My read of that was that that was live TV footage of an actual Santa Right,
1: that's what I'm. I think so too. Who just yeah. so happens
0: to look like Tom Cruise in old man makeup.
1: <laughs> very silly, very silly, but okay. Whatever. I
0: like it. I think it's. I think it's really good. Yeah, no, I do. It's. I also think that Cruise's performance is kind of good.
1: Okay. I can see that. He I just think his accent work is always a little silly. I really appreciated one of the reasons I remember Jack's name is because when they're waiting for the elevator and it's him in the old man makeup Aunt and Christmas Chris Thomas. Thomas. It's the best And name. she's like, hey, do you don't you have someone on your staff named Jack? And he's like, Oh, I think I do recall a man named Jack. He unreliable. An unreliable. <laughs> and he's like, All right, foghorn. <laughs>
0: It's a good joke. It is a good joke. And really, this whole sequence is just so strong, so capable. And it is building that capability into the characters, I think, that really connects us to them, right? We've got Emilio in the elevator shaft. We've got the thumbprint yep. scanner. We've got the, the flirty, teasing kind of chemistry between everybody that's also like super yeah, professional and capable. everybody has. Yeah, yeah that's it's, cool. It's just really strong. Ethan and Sarah hit the basement to set up the camera hidden in the glasses so that they can get the pictures of Galitzin right. because they also have to be able to have evidence of Galitzin right, stealing right, he the other half this. of the knock list. Mm-hmm. He's stealing the knock list on this uh, magneto optical disc too. Did you see this? this, this no, fantastic I didn't realize. It looked, yeah. three and a half inch verbatim disc that we have. Yes. It's the same tech as uh, Sony mini discs. Do you remember mini discs? Yes. Yeah. It's that same tech. This is like second generation floppy disk technology. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I guess like fifth generation floppy disk technology they're so cool and <laughs> chunky and ah this is one of the rival uh, formats to like zip disks and it's that moment when we're when we recognize that we need more portable storage for mm-hmm. computers but we haven't yet got rewritable cds yeah it's very narrow like slice of technology right wow. there in the middle that very narrow slice of technology in fact continues throughout right with our power books and our ThinkPads. all of the computers in this this movie are like it's like September of 1995. It's like, it's so close. Mm. I love it. Having apparently accomplished their goal, the team starts their extraction, their exfiltration. And that's a wrap for Emilio Estevez. <laughs> Thanks, Emilio. Go hit yep. the showers. It's upsetting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's
0: a very it's, I actually remembered it effect.
1: being more upsetting than it ended up being. I think largely because we spent so much of that sequence with people ducking and crouching down in that same elevator shaft yeah but he is standing up with his face lifted up to the spikes and i'm like you didn't think to crouch this time this was the time to crouch it's really bad i know and you have an eye thing so of course it's extra upsetting yeah
0: i unlike most people have a sensitivity (laughs) to trauma involving eyes and sharp objects i i know i'm I'm so unusual.
1: Fair enough. Fair enough. Yes, it's upsetting. Of course it's upsetting.
0: The thing of it is is that I always forget that actual shot of him looking up and being impaled. It's such a brief shot. Mm -hmm. Because I always think that it's we're going to see the blades come. What are those blades? I don't know.
1: Who has weaponized
0: this elevator shaft? (laughs) Was Phelps in there with a team of contractors like three weeks before spoilers, you guys? Phelps is the bad guy in this movie, just in case you haven't been watching at home. Was he in there with a team of contractors just adding retractable blades to the roof of the elevator? I have no idea. It's grim. I love though how we are handling it. Cutting out to Ethan and Sarah out the by the wall, where yeah. they're in this like very intimate like you know embrace almost, but sort there's of. no mm-hmm. intimacy between them at yeah. all. They're just so professional in this mm-hmm. moment. It's really great. It's
1: great. I agree.
0: So in pretty short order, with this rising sense of paranoia, Phelps is shot on the bridge and falls into the river. Mm-hmm. The car explodes. Claire and Hannah are both killed. Glitzen and Sarah are both stabbed to death, under yeah. the br- which is really awful. There's a very distinctive knife that there probably is? won't show up in the rest Surely of the film. Not. Nothing to worry about there. And Ethan runs to the phone box. He runs. He Tom Cruise runs. Like you we Tom talked Cruise about runs? it showing yeah, up yeah, in the yeah. film. But boy, how do we have got real Tom Cruise running in mm-hmm. this movie, just wall to wall. It's fantastic. It's really good. He calls Kittredge and we cut pretty quick to the scene in the diner. And this is what I love about Ethan Hunt as a character, right? We get the fact that he is driven, we get the fact that he is shadowed by by guilt and by grief in the mm-hmm. later films, because he never gets over what happens in this film, right? right? This is going to be absolutely definitive for Ethan Hunt.
1: Yeah, I this mean, is the Ethan Hunt origin story.
0: It is. like is. Yeah. We're not going to remember that when we get to Mission Impossible 2. And we're going to have a handle on it in three, but we're not going to be quite there. But we yeah, bring
1: it back later. Later yeah. on, this
0: is going to be the thing that makes him who That's he is. That survivor's guilt. Yeah. Absolutely. And I love that in this moment, he's both feeling that but he is always the smartest person in the room he is the best at what he does and when he is clocking the various people who are in the diner and tying them back we're cutting out to flashbacks to the party it's so great yep and understanding too like what this means what has happened here that he is being fingered as the Mm. mole in the imf the imf the impossible mission force (laughs) you know them yeah it's so great that we constantly refer to the IMF in this film and never say that it means impossible mission for us. you,
1: you can't say that. It's so good. What does "knock" stand for, by the way, for knock list? I kept thinking that I would look it up and then I never did. Yeah,
0: non-official cover. I don't. Oh. know Why okay. it's non-official? <laughs> okay.
1: It should be official. I feel like, but
0: okay. Is yeah. it non-official in the sense that they are that they are undercover? Right, but <laughs> I, uh,
1: yeah, I don't, I don't know. know.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's it sounds cool, right? Knocklist. Yeah, knock list, it yeah sounds the alibi awesome. list. Yeah, sure. yeah.
1: Alias. That's it. The alias list. Yeah.
0: As good as the sequence is, I do wonder about delivering all of this exposition just by having Kitteridge, like, say it out loud. Yeah. I'm not sure that this is the best way to deliver, you know, Max and Job and Job 314 specifically. Yeah. Job
1: 314. Sorry. Yes. Job, yeah. Of
0: course, because he's the dumbest at Spycraft. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the things that I really like about Henry's journey in this role is that Kitteridge sucks. <laughs> yeah,
1: that is true, too.
0: Ethan blows the aquarium in order to escape, which is...
1: A very cool sequence, actually. It's really neat.
0: This is it. This is the first time Tom Cruise performing his own stunts. There, there is uproar at the time. The insurance people don't want to let him I'm do it. sure they don't. The stunt guys don't want to let him yeah. do it. But well, I mean, he's, too. you know, executive producer, king of the hill of this film. <laughs> and if he wants to do it, he's going to do it. The real reason that he wanted to do it originally was that they just couldn't get it to look right with any of the stunt performers. They couldn't get a shot that looks like Tom when it's not Tom. Which that is,
1: makes a little bit of sense. That's yeah. his
0: argument today mm-hmm. about doing all of his own stunts in these films. The audience has to know that it's really me, that I'm really the one doing it. That's what makes it exciting because we've all seen a million stunts. And I think that there's an argument there is. to that yeah. really, right? Yeah. The best special effect is the truth. Amen
1: to that. Yeah. yeah. It's
0: a really striking sequence. I love the reverse shot that we get of him running down the street with the, the pool of water. Coming yeah. right behind him. it's so cool. Really nicely done. Yeah. yeah. This is the sequence when he returns to the apartment and we start getting the, we get the great little, you know, espionage of him taking the light bulb out of the fitting, cracking it in his jacket, sprinkling it out so that it'll make a sound if anyone approaches the safe house. Yeah, yeah. Really like tight, good Mm -hmm. stuff. And then the very silly sequence of him searching the internet and not not finding a lot. And we have, of course, the clue of the Bible, which Mm. if there is... A misaligned element in the plotting of this film. It is definitely this Bible.
1: Yeah, it doesn't make any sense.
0: Why does Phelps even have it? Yeah. Let alone, why does he have the very specific one that he stole from the hotel room back in the Drake Hotel in Chicago? Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. This, this part doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You gotta watch. Go yeah, that. yeah. It's a great set piece, though. I do want to say, like the the production design throughout is really cool. But this particular, the safe house set is
0: awesome. It's maybe my favorite in the entire film. Yeah, yeah it's so rich, and I love that we keep returning to it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really good. We then get this dream sequence of Phelps showing up, which oh yeah, I don't love, but I really like the way that it's inverted when Phelps really shows yes. up later in the film. Sure. That's a really strong moment, mm-hmm. I think. So. This, as a moment unto itself, not really for me. I don't need my heroes having, you know, delusional hallucinations at any point. But yeah, as as a way of seeding Phelps' return later in the film, pretty good. And then, of course, we get Claire, who is now all white-eyed, blinky, ingenue, breathy. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about her at this point in the film?
1: Uh, I mean, once you find out everything that's going on, I really like her. So the fact that she is playing a role right now, she's pulling it off beautifully she's pushing all of his buttons and she's manipulating him i mean pretty much perfectly ruthlessly. like yeah, yeah no, ruthlessly absolutely. and just spot on so i think it's cool
0: and even the intelligence of it right oh yeah when he's demanding to know why she came back here and yeah she, it's four o'clock it's four o'clock it's four a.m yeah. it's four o'clock we were supposed to oh come 400 like, like she's really like yeah. selling that shell-shocked you know kind of mimicking him right yeah. Reading his emotional state and kind of and reflecting that back it back to, to, him, to him which smart is, yeah.
1: smart And I will also say they are very hot together.
0: They are hot together.
1: I I don't often find that Tom Cruise has like a sexual chemistry. We've talked about this before. But I think that these two do. On screen anyway.
0: I think that there's something about this character. There's something about Ethan being like... We've talked before a little bit like looking ahead in our series about Tom Cruise's action hero persona. And Mm -hmm. the, the special skill that he has is communicating the fact that he is holding on by his fingernails yeah right? yeah, yeah. That, that he's never really completely in control that's what makes him so compelling in mm-hmm. this type of role and there's something emotionally sexually about that too right where he's he's caught up in this whirlwind with Claire and he's as susceptible to it as she is right yeah. no one is seducing like obviously textually Claire is seducing right. Ethan at this point but we don't know that right. in the moment it feels as though neither one of them is really seducing the other they're both just caught up in this thing yeah. And I really, the more we watch these films, the more I think that you put Tom Cruise on the back foot, Yep. you make him reactive, and that's where his magic lies. That's where it comes from. You can make him super confident and super capable, and he can do a thing in that space. And it's Mm -hmm. obviously a compelling and successful thing, looking at his career. But I really love what he can bring as an actor when he is reactive. Yeah. And I think there's something to that here that if he was seducing Claire, it would feel very different. It would feel more mechanical and more cold perhaps yeah maybe so yeah there's an immediacy here as well as you know in the foxhole together like yeah it's just a hot situation really uh from here we get the very complicated instructions from max that he has to go down and buy cigarettes and then ask this person for a light and then the car pulls up and he gets he's put in an upsettingly embroidered (laughs) hood (laughs)
1: it's like silly but also really upsetting don't
0: love it gotta tell you but then we get the reveal of max in all her glory so cool oh my god that's a so so great Mm. uh Ethan tells Max that the knocklist is a trap. That the knocklist that he has just delivered is right. a trap. But she has to test it, and then we get IMF agents showing up like immediately, which yeah. is cool. But they've already left. That sequence of them walking out across the rooftop is neat. It's just very capable, mm-hmm. and and this kind of capability in an action film of this sort is is really you know catnip to me. Yeah. By the time this sequence is over, Max has made the agreement with Ethan to give him ten million dollars and job. In exchange for the real knock list, which he is going to have to steal right. from the CIA in Langley. Uh huh. Buckle up, you guys. It gets real good from here. <laughs> Back at the apartment, Claire takes inventory and signs up to help. Ethan searches for disavowed IMF agents. Very helpful to have mm-hmm, that database, mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. sure. And we introduce Luther and Franz, Ving Rhames and Jean Renault. We get our briefing about Langley. We set up the heist, and this is the most memorable sequence in the movie. This is the best sequence in the I movie. I think
1: it's the most memorable sequence in all of the movies for me.
0: I think that is a really strong position. Mm. I cannot immediately. Yeah, there are a couple of fragmentary sequences that I can sure. remember that I think are at least as good. You know, I think of of racing through the streets of Paris, I think, in that exten- that extended chase sequence with Rebecca Ferguson sure. much, much later in the run. And I'm breaking my own rule here by talking about the future movies <laughs> in this franchise. There are a few sequences that I think at least rival this one. But I Yeah would be surprised if we come out of all of the Mission Impossible movies without this being in our top three. Oh, totally. At least. We should actually do that. We should keep a list of the best action sequence in each movie. And then maybe figure out how they rank right there at the end. And I'd be interested too in whether or not that ranking is different from the ranking of how good the movies are.
1: Oh, sure. Probably. Yeah.
0: So this goes really quickly here they infiltrate yeah. the building dressed as firefighters
1: which i almost lost the thread of at some point it was one of those things where i was like oh yeah we're firefighters now <laughs> like there's a lot happening <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh yeah we're firefighters now <laughs> i forgot Claire is put to the only use that Claire can be put, which is look hot and drug this guy, William Dunlop. But
1: also, if you want to look like somebody who's blending in that everyone's going to forget, don't be so hot in a red dress. Like, you made a mistake.
0: As everyone in that cafeteria is, like, nudging each other and looking at this woman. uh, When did the uh, hottest uh, woman uh, in history come to work (laughs) for everyone else here? Schlubby intelligence person, right?
1: And you're telling me that guy didn't notice that she touched his shoulder? I I don't know. know.
0: I I wouldn't notice This guy, William Dunlow, the character here, is played by the much more brilliantly named Rolf Saxon. He is Mm. kind of just a recurring character actor in things, but I know him best as the voice of George Stobart, who is the protagonist of a series of graphical adventure games called the Broken Sword Games in the late 1990s and the 2000s. It's kind of a uh, Da Vinci Code, like Illuminati conspiracy series of video games, and he plays this... A hapless American who just keeps getting caught up, along with a very sexy French journalist, uh-huh. in these, you know, ancient conspiracies. And they are they are great games, really, really good <laughs> games. At least the first two are. I don't really have a strong memory of the others. He's also the American narrator in the Teletubbies, which is weird.
1: <gasps> Whoa! So that is wild weird, career but okay. or
0: wildest career? I, wow! I couldn't <laughs> for say. Rolf <laughs> for Rolf Saxon. <Sachsen. laughs> wow! I don't know. From here. I mean, you know this, even if you haven't seen this movie, you know this, even if you've never watched a Mission Impossible film, you know what this sequence looks like. It's the best. It's
1: really cool. And the physicality that Tom Cruise has in this performance is pretty insane. Like, I wonder how much of it is exactly what it looks like and how much of it is
0: like augmented. A great deal of it is exactly what it looks like. That's awesome no lines or support ties were what? digitally erased in this film he is no re- his shoes are loaded with pound coins with with actual money because that's the only way of making his feet right. heavy enough that he can balance exactly horizontally yes it looks wow impossible because there's there there's impossible. minor trickery happening yeah, yeah, yeah. in the shot but it's all but really i can also buy that camera. he
1: wore heavy shoes that day because he knew he was yeah, gonna have yeah, to I do, mean, you know what i mean in like, effect that okay. is what happened yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i you know i mean Ethan hunt but yeah that's cool. Yeah. It it's looks awesome.
0: Just a phenomenal sequence. And yeah. exactly what I we was were talking, talking about earlier about De Palma establishing this space. Yeah. And then just inhabiting that space. It's, That's it's so cool. Yeah. Really, really strong. Mm-hmm. Even the, you know, bathroom hallway interaction that we get with Dunlow coming out and yeah. back and out and back. It, yeah. So it just strong. It works.
1: Yeah. I'm really appreciating practical effects and people just doing like I love that Tom Cruise does his own stunts I do think that that's very cool we watched Ferrari last night and every time the new Michael Mann new, Adam Driver yeah, yeah, yeah. yes and every time I got thrown out was because of CGI when it just completely breaks the world for me it breaks my immersion in the world
0: yeah particularly for a film that should really rest on that physicality right yeah. kind of has to rest on that physicality yeah yeah Ferrari was a disappointing film unfortunately mm-hmm.
1: sorry yeah
0: and the box office agrees with us yeah
1: <laughs> it's too bad there's a lot that I liked about it but that in particular was really Penelope, was Penelope Cruz
0: was stunning yeah a stunning and very unglamorous performance mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. I'm surprised she didn't get more Oscar attention more more awards yeah. attention for that film
1: yeah so yeah. am I
0: but back to our set piece yes, here in this yes. Mission Impossible film, uh, I guess we can't really talk about every single part of it. It's 11 minutes long. I do have one long question. Is it is. Okay. It
1: is like 11 minutes long. Yes. My question is the glasses. Yes. I don't recall that he uses the glasses to record anything. I don't believe so. So why is he wearing them and how do they stay on when That's, he's hanging upside down?
0: I don't, perhaps we are recording everything just as a backup? No, Maybe. he is. No, of course he's recording because he's showing out video to Ving Rains. Oh, in he band. is. Right, he yes. is. So like showing record- that the, yes. So
1: that is. Yeah, of course he is. Okay. I guess then I just wanted to have like the the nerdy sports strap in the back <laughs> that you have to wear when you play softball. You know what I'm talking about? Like yeah. it needs something to stay on his head. The
0: IMF has not completely perfected the technology of inserting a tiny video camera into rec specs, but I see what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> the part of this that always works best for me the part that I find most tense of course is in fact the rat in the back of the shot approaching yeah. Jean Reno when he's up in the duct yeah I really like
1: interesting I don't think I love that just because it seems one an odd place for a rat like up and in the duct work although maybe sure. maybe okay. I don't know I don't I don't live in a city where there is a rat problem and I suppose that the other thing is because I've never lived in a big enough city where rats are a thing I'm always like there wouldn't be a rat there but maybe there would
0: be maybe I'm wrong <laughs> So what is your favorite part of the whole expedition?
1: The crazy ballet looking move where he flips himself from parallel to cool. like standing perpendicular It's so fucking cool. Yeah. That's really neat. Yeah, that's my favorite little bit.
0: And of course, we all kind of clown on the sweat drop being caught on the glove.
1: its It doesn't really work it in doesn't. the physical space, but it's neat.
0: I think maybe, yeah, I'm revising this now in my head. I think maybe my favorite thing is just the very physical performance that Cruz gives after France stabs the rat and he drops. And that frantic maneuvering of his body to try to maintain his center of balance when he's six inches off the floor. Exactly. And
1: his face is giving frantic. It is not giving cool or suave or debonair. It is, oh shit, oh shit. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Put Cruz on the back foot and he will give you something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I really like that. And, And obviously, overall, this is just just. One of the most distinctive and impressive sequences in all time of all time. Like, you cannot now do anything like this without referencing Mission Impossible. No. Mm. I suppose the real question, because this functions as a a fulcrum in the center of the film, the real question is, does the rest of the movie deliver? Or is it kind of a, a downhill slide after this peak sequence? A little
1: bit downhill. I love everything on top of the train. But again, as soon as we get... I was so excited, too, when the train is pulling he attaches the helicopter to the train. The train is basically pulling the helicopter and you see the tunnel and I'm ready for it to just like be this cool, crazy explosion. And then we get back in the train and do some other stuff. But instead having the helicopter follow into the tunnel, that's, that's where I lose it. But everything up until that point is cool.
0: And I think that that is a very common problem, much less so in 1996, but a very common problem in action cinema these days is exactly that, right? You build... A sequence that has a natural conclusion, and instead of ending the sequence there, you pivot from it into something that's even more outlandish. Yeah. It's more like a kid playing with their
1: toys, you know. Remember, we were talking about Toy Story earlier. Remember why well, I brought my dinosaur that eats <laughs> forest field dogs. Like, what are we doing?
0: <laughs> Having recovered the knock list and extracted, oh, the great exfiltration there, too, where they're all just back in their firefighter uniforms and just run out of the building. So yeah, so fun. great. We've got the knock list, now we escape. We hard cut out to London. France thinks that he has the list, which... I'm thinking is just an opportunity for Tom Cruise to demonstrate he that he do can this? do close up. Yes, of course. Did he do this? I listen, it's we're, really
1: good. We're
0: eighteen episodes into this run looking at the filmography of Tom Cruise. Listen. Did he do this? Is not gonna be a question that we have to ask anymore. Okay. Well, yes. it's cool. He really it's learned how to do close up magic and he did
1: Especially it. since that's a it's not like a quarter. That it's was not. an entire a big, like old a big old disc. Yeah. yeah. Very impressive. I mean,
0: I'm sure there's trickery between the cuts, but yes, yeah. the, certainly the, the the vanish that he does with his hands outstretched, he really did learn how to do it. Hot. It's pretty good. That's really cool. It's also, again, Ethan being incredibly resourceful mm-hmm. in the moment because, spoilers, turns out, France had the knock list. Yep. He really did steal it. And Ethan has to just improvise this, oh, please, come on. You think you're smart? I'm so yeah. much smarter and cooler <laughs> than you. And just he was. bluffs Jean Renault down, which is not a thing that most people can no. do. Really impressive. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And earns the loyalty of Ving Rheims forever. Luther, I should say. Yeah.
0: Yes. The moment when he trusts the disc Mm -hmm. then to Luther is really strong. That's why Luther recurs through all of his films. It's that moment of connection. This is also the sequence where he realizes that the Bible has come from the Drake Hotel in Chicago. And oh my God, maybe Jim Phelps was in on this the whole time. We get the sequence here too with Claire showing Ethan the news report that his mother has been arrested.
1: Yeah. All the all the parent stuff was yeah. a little bit. We didn't this need sucks. it. Yeah. 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 It's we so bad.
0: That. It's also so bad that we're so insecure in our delivery of this information that we have to give Ethan's mom the middle name Ethan. <laughs> Just, oh. Oh, it's his mom. They have the same name. Wait. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Is that what it was? Yes. Oh, that's Really terrible. not good. Really no, not good no, no, at all. No.
1: And even his throwaway line later is like, my mom was surprised that someone could, you know, confuse her for the owner of a drug cartel. And I'm like, yeah, on her farm in Virginia or whatever yeah, it was. Yeah, not, not silly. fantastic
0: stuff. Ethan calls Kittredge from Liverpool Street Station to let him know that he is in London. But then his plan kind of pivots forcibly because Phelps shows up right there, right for real, right in his trench coat. He tells Ethan that Kittredge is the mole.
1: Yeah, this part was also confusing. Is... I had to put the captions on.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. What, what was throwing you out here? Well,
1: because... So we're doing this thing where Phelps is saying, you know, that Kittredge is this bad guy and Ethan Hunt is like repeating it back to him as he's putting the pieces together. Yes. But he keeps on saying he, but it's almost thrown away. So because we're showing, you know, Jim Phelps in uh, Ethan Hunt's mind, I keep thinking that he's saying you and so that he's showing that he actually knows. Right. And I wasn't sure why... Jim Phelps wasn't looking more squirmy. And so I had to go back. And that's when I realized that he was saying he the whole time that he was like playing along in an interesting way. Yeah. So once I realized what was happening, I thought it was really smart, but I needed maybe just a little bit, uh, uh, either a little bit of help. Or just a better sound mix. I, don't I think know.
0: maybe I just need to buy like a better TV. You watch all of these movies in the bedroom. No joke. And that's maybe like this not is a great maybe TV. Maybe a
1: problem. We maybe need a sound bar for that TV. <laughs> no kidding.
0: Because I didn't have that problem at all. And yeah, I, I watch yeah. it on my laptop with, with mm. headphones because I'm simultaneously taking yeah. my notes. So yeah, that's, maybe uh,
1: yeah, I'll have to figure something out. Sure. Patreon.com. Next word. <laughs> that's Help it. Sound bar. Head over there. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, I love the way that this sequence is constructed to have Phelps narrating this lie for Ethan to immediately understand that it is a lie. Yeah. To be flashing out as he is like imagining how this could go together. My favorite moment is when we see the fake out of the car explosion when mm-hmm. he imagines Claire detonating the car, then realizes no, wait, she couldn't no, have been there. No, no, no. And then he imagines Phelps detonating the car. Yeah. Really great. Like what it the that show she don't tell.
1: Couldn't have been there, or that he can't imagine her doing that, that he just can't put her in that I position. I think that
0: what he says is that she couldn't have been there, but that the meaning of that is, I- ambiguous, is exactly ambiguous in exactly the way ah, that you're suggesting. Ha, yeah. It's very good. Yeah. It's yeah, it's really strong. The layers of dramatic irony that are at play yeah. here, I think, are just lovely. It's cool. We then return to the apartment and as predicted, Claire comes in to try and yeah. seduce Ethan, and he kind of plays along with it. He right? does. Yeah. He
1: does. This is nice. This is also a part where usually the man gets mad and violent with the woman, and I really appreciate that he didn't.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No. It's it's a very mm-hmm. complex performance. What do you think of the the hand kissing that happens here as she takes his hand and and is kissing it?
1: I thought it was lovely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, she's manipulating and it's terrible and he can see it and he's also
0: sad about it. There's a lot of lovely nuance going on here. The stage is set for the meeting on the train. Ethan gives the disc to Max and is told where to find the $10 million in the baggage car. We get this little short sequence here where Luther is blocking the upload from his laptop, but then has to move because Kitteridge is coming down the train. The tension of people on a train being forced to move from carriage to carriage because they are being covertly pursued by someone, Always strong, Taylor's always good. Time. Just yeah. Let, yeah, you can do that anytime you like, and I will fall for it. I think it's just great. Yeah, Claire goes to find Phelps in the baggage car, and we get this brilliant scene of her just <laughs> confessing everything. Yeah, only that's not Jim Phelps. Dun dun dun. This is you know the biggest flourish. This is the prestige oh, yeah. for this film. It works, right? It's it's good.
1: I think it does. Yeah, the only thing that doesn't work for me is when he is actually up against Phelps, and he says, oh, excuse me, and puts his glasses on and Phelps doesn't recognize that those are glasses that Jack made for everybody. Like that part seems silly to me. But other than that, I'm here for it.
0: Yeah. The fact that his whole plan rests on the fact that no one knows he's alive, which right. I kind of like from this, yeah, from this espionage perspective, right? Like there are enough skilled people in this industry in the world that if you are alive, they will find you and the only way yeah. you can be safe is for them to think you are already dead. Yep. That's is actually cool. kind of good. Mm-hmm. The sequence is, yeah, a little a little frantic there. Obviously, here Claire dies. Yeah. That death seems to be used to motivate Ethan. At least a little bit.
1: Oh, maybe a little bit. But I, he was already as motivated as he was going to be. So you're seeing this just yeah. as like
0: a clearing up of the villains of the piece, right? Like we have to take out Claire so that we can just focus on Phelps. We don't have to do anything secondary here.
1: Basically. Yeah. 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 That we don't have that loose thread to tie up. Do
0: the optics of the woman is the one who dies kind of oh, it's so terrible. you? Yeah. No. Yeah, okay. it's gross. Yeah. yeah.
1: And, and, and Phelps and his gross line I mentioned earlier, you know, after having tasted the goods, it's I knew so it was so gross. It's yeah. so disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. No, she, they, they do her dirty, unfortunately.
0: And from there we get on the top of the train. I guess. Yeah. And it's yeah, it's a powerful action sequence. Everything it is, on top of the train is is all of Cruz's
1: work on top of the train is cool and good.
0: Having him repeatedly here take that leap of faith, just let go of something and then grab onto something yeah, else, yeah. and just succeed over and over in these minor ways as he's approaching Phelps is good. Deep. I don't think that that necessarily the physicality of John Voight works here. I'm not sure. I'm completely convinced. Don't buy that he, buy can, the uh, he could yeah, do it. Yeah. Nope. It's not. Maybe the most compelling thing. But no. you know, it's beautifully shot. It is beautifully arranged. We have this real sense of kineticism of, of sure. speed. I think we lose that a little once we're in the tunnel. Yeah. And obviously, yes, the Everything helicopter the is. is very ridiculous. And yeah. I will say too that the the dimensions of the tunnel change as we're moving. This is the only space that doesn't feel figured out to me. The dimensions yeah. dimensions of the tunnel change depending on what we need in mm-hmm. that moment. And That's a little dispiriting, but, you know, still very compelling, perhaps overlong, particularly after we had this incredibly tense sequence earlier in the film. Yeah. And that's it. Eventually, the bad guys die and Mm -hmm. the train stops and we get the the helicopter rotor blade coming within like four inches of Ethan's neck. (laughs) You can really feel the 1996 of it all here, too, with the appearance of British character actor and comedian David Schneider as the engineer on the train.
1: Oh, the guy who passes out right behind. That's so dumb. Yeah. So
0: 1996 to do things
1: like that. But that is the one part of the movie that I thought that our boys would love. Like, just show them the train sequence (laughs) with the crazy helicopter and the guy who passes out. Yeah, I think that's probably... yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, probably why that character is there, hear, in fact.
1: Dun, yeah. dun, 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 in real life. That'll be great.
0: We cut out to the pub in London and this wonderful moment between mm, uh, Ethan and Luther. Uh, yeah, just drinking beer and listening to the Cranberries doesn't sound I mean, so bad, let's right? let's do it. The restoration of justice, yeah. right? Luther's back in the IMF. Ethan isn't so sure. Right. But when he gets on a plane to fly to, the, well, actually, we don't know where he's flying, right? He's flying, flying back to the he's US. Going. He's probably yeah. not flying to the Caribbean. No, that would no, no, be no, a little no. weird. But yes, he gets his next briefing and he's back in the game. Bang. Closing credits. And that's Mission Impossible. We've obviously had a great time talking about oh, this yeah. film. Where does it go on the list? He asked provocatively.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's easily top three.
0: Easily top three. So I you think, think so. categorically better than Rain Man, there's not even a conversation Not to even have. a conversation. Okay. No. So actually, if you're saying top three, you're saying categorically better than The Firm, there's not even a conversation to have.
1: Uh, The Firm is cool, but no, this is The Firm plus, 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 plus. Yeah. <laughs> okay.
0: I mean, <laughs> in a way, yes. Right? Yeah. No, yeah. sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that it is definitely better than The Firm. Definitely. Ah, it's so difficult, right? It's
1: Yeah, these are very different movies.
0: It's not as iconic as Top Gun. It's maybe not as complete as Top Gun. Mm-hmm. I, I think that maybe the franchise will get there. Mission Impossible 1 is a great film, but, but right. it's going to be overshadowed by subsequent Mission Impossibles. Yeah. spoilers for future discussions, I guess. Well, it's
1: maybe a little thin, certainly emotionally. I think about like, how emotionally rich Top Gun is.
0: True, true. Yeah. We don't engage with grief the way that Top Gun engages right. with grief, and we have perhaps more cause. Later, Mission Impossible films will deal yeah. with that grief yeah. in a better and more sophisticated way. That's true. That's a very good point. Mm-hmm. So for me, the discussion is, is it better or worse than A Few Good Men? which is uh, such an apples and oranges comparison that
1: yeah I don't even know what you it do It is that's a really hard one. Um I'm going to say that it is better. Yeah, like A Few Good Men is is great, definitely. And god, the script writing is so extraordinary.
0: A Few Good Men has a line, a line of dialogue yeah. that has hung over the industry ever right. since. This has an entire 11-minute action say, sequence that has that been sequence. parodied and yeah. replicated and duplicated. Yes. Yeah. I think it has to be. That sounds
1: right. Yeah. Top Gun, Mission Impossible, A Few Good Men. That sounds right. Perfect. Then okay. that's where
0: it goes on the list. And that is going to do it for this week's episode of The Last Star in Hollywood. Guys, we have had an absolute blast doing this. Next week on the show, Jerry Maguire, a hard turn. The hardest yeah. possible turn, perhaps. It's, it
1: is, but I'm so into it. I love such it.
0: a great film. Such a different cruise. Mm. Such a different path that opens up for him in his career. That yeah. is that is the road not taken, right? <laughs> the Jerry Maguire path is the one that is not going yeah. to happen, but I'm really looking forward to talking about it. Looking forward to talking, of course, about Rennie Zellweger. We're going to have mm-hmm. a great deal to look forward to next week. Everything that we do here at The Last Star in Hollywood is possible, thanks to you guys. Elizabeth, would you like to thank our wonderful superstar patrons, our personal IMF team who can undertake any <laughs> mission no matter how impossible
1: our very own knocklist here yes <laughs> <laughs> thank you to leslie skipa louise and dallas megan louder phoebe art kilmer kimberly bear and self on a shelf
0: thank you guys so much so grateful we'd break into a building for you anytime let's go get the sunglasses one quick plug before we wrap up here this coming week on my other podcast stars and swords i am beginning a new book our third book in this series mm. we are talking about The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab. I cannot wait to record this podcast. I've already started (laughs) taking notes. It's so good. It's going to be a really fun discussion. So pick up that book, read part one, and then head on over to Stars and Swords this coming Sunday for the first episode of our ongoing discussion. Six weeks for that book. Can't wait. It's going to be so much fun. Mm. That's going to do it for The Last Star in Hollywood. Next week, Jerry Maguire will be back with you very soon. Until then, take care. See you next time.